Today, my guest is Varun Anand. He's the head of operations at Clay. Varun, welcome. Thanks, Marcus. Great to be here. Excellent. Would you mind giving the audience 60 seconds on your history and how you got to this point? Yes, it's kind of a winding road, but happy to happy to share. I actually started my career in politics, which is very uh, very different than uh, than sales and and growth. Is and it really? And, and all. Well, <laughs> yeah, it just selling. Yeah, in some ways, it's 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 selling. In some ways, it's selling. It's a lot of communication. Yeah, I get that. But very different from. And actually, I think you're right. There's a lot of uh, common denominators between political campaigns and tech startups, and so there are many many common threads there. But after that, I, I moved into the world of technology. Uh, I worked at Google at a subsidiary of Alphabet, um, sort of working on tools to fight against online harassment and things like that. And then uh, just worked on scaling startups since then. And so, you know, ran expansion for a direct-to-consumer healthcare business in New York called Candid. Was a GM of uh, a health insurance business in uh, in for a tech-enabled insurance startup called Newfront based in San Francisco. And then I started getting involved in this whole no-code, low-code movement couple of years ago and really got passionate about it as someone who's non-technical myself. That's sort of how I stumbled upon Clay, which is sort of a, a no-code, low-code tool for prospecting. What we I'm feeling today. intimidated. I can't believe you packed all that in. You look so much younger than you sound. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how could you have done all of that? <laughs> well, when you graduate college at the age of 20, you, you tend to have a time to do these things. So yeah, so th- that's kind of a brief story. And then I found Clay through my sort of passion for the no-code, low-code space. I saw the product and honestly just thought it was magical and thought it was like an incredible, incredible product. And I just felt like I had to be part of it. And so here I am. So you you talked in the green room about creative prospecting. Can you define what you mean by that, please? Yeah, absolutely. So I think creative prospecting is sort of a shift from what we've been seeing over the last uh, several years where lots of people have been um, trying to do prospecting just through titles. And so taking, doing a basic search on a Crunchbase maybe or an Apollo and saying, or LinkedIn, and just saying, I want a list of companies who are maybe Series A businesses and uh, I just want to talk to their heads of growth. And that's it. And I think that worked for a long time. But, and I think we talked about this a little bit and we can talk about it again, but there are a lot of reasons why it's working a lot less right now. And now there's definitely a need to be a lot more creative in that approach to actually help people reach the right people that they're trying to target and the specific people who have the pain point at the moment that they need your solution. And um, yeah. Okay. I'm absolutely on board with the whole idea of very precise targeting and precision uh, in that outreach so that you turn up at the right time with the right message so that you're delivering the right value and helping them advance their decision in a way that makes them feel that they're safer with you beside them on that journey rather than without you. Yep. So I love the, the, the whole idea of being much, much more precise and more effective. Why is it that we've uh, seen this explosion in MarTech and sales enablement and all these other uh, technologies, and yet we're seeing sales go down? or certainly quota attainment, has plummeted. The last seven years, it's gone from uh, about 60%. To, uh, and this year, I'm hearing forecasts of around 30% of team quota attainment. Well, a couple of things. Well, we were just talking about how lots of people are just doing outbound and stuff like that. And I think there's been a lot of technology 
over the last several years, you know, tools like outreach, uh, for example, that just make it extremely easy to do outbound campaigns. And, you know, that's, that's kudos to them. That's great software. That's what they were setting out to do. But uh, an ancillary effect of that is that now everyone is just doing it and you're sort of reaching a saturation point and just becoming, you know, more and more diminishing returns to doing this. And so people have to do something else, something more creative. And some other ancillary factors is like, you know, with, with the rise of product and growth with lower ACVs, you need, uh, you need more marketing to, to drive more pipeline and, you can't necessarily afford expensive sales reps at that, at, that, at, that, at that price point. I think maybe the last thing is just that the market now is a lot tougher and people are spending less. And so standard you have to reach, is just materially higher, which is forcing the sort of sea change in how you approach this. Okay. I'm going to challenge you because uh, I, I think this is an area that's really worthy of deeper debate. I posit that often the marketing itself is not only mistargeted, but utterly selfish and totally irrelevant. And the net result of that is that no one pays any attention to it. So it doesn't matter how good your technology is. If you don't get back to the fundamentals, the basics of communicating with your audience and meeting them where they are, then all the tech in the world, all the training in the world, all the technique in the world is going to make no difference at all. If you have an amazing technique about product, uh, you're right. You're you're probably still not going to sell. Your product does need to act, uh, adequately solve a solution. But if you have a decent product or you have a product that's working, that's you know iterating, that's improving, you still will probably need great technique to actually get to these people unless you have a great product like Growth Motion or getting just huge amounts of inbound and virality and word of mouth. I agree. My, my point being, though, that I think so often... People are digging the hole in the wrong place. They don't really understand enough about the human being. And because they're so fixated because of their quota, the pressure uh, to hit quota and so on, that they forget that the reason they exist is the customer. And those fundamentals have been forgotten because, I mean, I look at most technology marketing and frankly, it's excruciatingly painful to read. It's technical, it's full of jargon, it's all self-referencing. It doesn't have, it, I mean, it, it clearly doesn't have me in mind. Is there an customer. example that, that you've seen recently that's worth talking about? I don't know. I mean, I'm just getting a, a constant stream of stuff. The mistargeting, as a trainer, a coach, a CRO in technology, what on earth do I need an electron microscope for? So that's an, an example of massive mistargeting. And the, and the use of bots, because again, what I'm seeing there is this proliferation of technology that could be used brilliantly, but it seems to be overused badly. And what, what my concern is, is that we're making it impossible for customers to even care, let alone hear us. Yeah, that's real. And I think like with so many people reaching out to you, selling you on electric telescopes, then uh, um, you're, it's hard to find and identify the diamonds in the rough. But I think I'd also say that I've actually been the recipient of some pretty decent prospecting recently. I was a speaker on a LinkedIn event uh, somewhat recently, and I got a cold email uh, that was automated, being like, hey, saw so you were a speaker on this event. Can I sell you this like you know event software? 
what they also didn't realize that they may have if they actually listened to the event is we were really struggling with the technology. And so they even mentioned that that would have taken uh, they would have taken it uh, to another level. Mm-hmm. But I actually noticed that, you know, and I get I get tons of, of, of random prospecting emails every day. And so I think there's still ways in the targeting without too much difficulty, like they were just scraping LinkedIn event attendees to do this. Out of how many hundreds or thousands have you had in your inbox? Did that one stand out? I think that maybe I'm an outlier and I'm happy to admit, but I actually read far more of these emails than maybe most people do. And maybe it's just because I'm in this this system like, oh, is there like some interesting technique that they use that I should emulate, which is just a nice word for copy. But uh, I actually read a lot of the emails. And I try to, if I can get past the first paragraph, because it needs to be relevant. But if at that point it's clearly not, I'm not going to waste my time. But let's get away from uh, me uh, ranting about this, because I I think there's a a much more interesting uh, discussion to be had if we start to challenge the status quo and start to ask intelligent questions. Like, well, why do we do it this way? Is it still fit for purpose? Is there a better way? And what I'm always looking for are ways to make life easier, simpler, frictionless. So what is it that we as outbound sellers can do to get out of our own way and stop making ourselves an obstacle for the buyer to buy? I think the key is sort of what you were saying before, really having an extremely deep understanding of who your customer is. And so I think the solve there is lots of people, when you ask them what their ICP is, they'll just say like series B companies and like the head of growth there or whatever it might be. But you want something really, really detailed. And I was working with a company the other day that I think has a really, really detailed understanding of it. And their answer was something to the effect of like, well, we look at all these articles and, um, and when we see these articles, they do this one thing in the articles and so we pull them out and that starts with the list of companies. And then we look at their fundraising data and then we look at the employee count and then we look at a specific subset of that employee count. And then we look at their careers page and then we make sure that they don't say a couple of words. And then if they don't say a couple of words, then we look for the right people and then we find the emails. And like, you know, that was like seven layers deep. Much, much nicer. It's precise because then you can turn up and be relevant. Presumably then it's incredibly helpful to understand the journey your typical buyer goes through and uh, their struggling moments uh, along that pathway for you to turn up and be the guide. Yeah, exactly. And so like, for example, if you are selling software to help make it easier to plan like an offsite or something, you might want to look at a company's website and say, do they even offer retreats as a benefit? Did they just get office space recently? Did they just get fundraising recently to suggest that they want to celebrate something that they might actually do an offsite in the near future? Or like if we're talking about offices and you want to understand like they uh, and you're selling software about office space, maybe, uh, and I'm just thinking about these off the top of my head, they've experienced tremendous growth and that way they need a new office or they signed a lease somewhere and the news of that came out somewhere so that you know they need a new office or they just got a new office that you can sell your thing for them. And so those are some proxies of ways that you can identify what you were just saying. Right. So what you're effectively looking for are evidence and triggers out in the wider data that tell you you can be relevant and timely. Exactly. Wonderful. Okay. 
So why is it that so little intelligence is applied generally to the building of the list, the targeting, the understanding of the ICP? Why is it that we seem to have created this culture where it's just all about doing more with the idea that more is better? And that's a myth. Better is better. More is more. I think it's just an awareness thing because I'm not sure. I talked to so many people about this and the vast majority of people don't even know that this world is out there. They don't even know that you can or should be prospecting to people in this way. And then let's say they do know about it. They have no idea how to actually get these data points. They have no idea how to actually make it in some way that doesn't sound extraordinarily manual and extraordinarily complex. Okay, so I've got the killer question on this one, I think. What do people currently believe is impossible that if they they realized it was possible would be a game changer for them? I think maybe a couple of things come to mind that uh, I think there's really low awareness on. The first thing I think is is sort of is GPT-3, which is sort of the, the artificial intelligence technology that's been developed by OpenAI. And I think people vastly underestimate the power of it and how advanced it already is and how much it can already do for, for you. And Would you so, mind explaining a little bit, just go into a bit more detail? Yep, absolutely. So there are a couple of things on the top of my head that I've just seen in the last week that I think are really, really powerful, where you can use artificial intelligence to say, and you can use GPT-3, GPT-3 in particular to say, I want to know, here's a, a list of a, a thousand TechCrunch articles, okay? And I want this technology to go look at those articles and tell me the company name that the, I, want, I want to know uh, who the investors were and who the, and the amount of money that was fundraised. And I think a lot of people would think that's impossible right now. And in reality, the technology has advanced to a degree far enough where that is very possible, where you can, where the, where the artificial intelligence can look at articles, as an example here, and identify key attributes, and can even take it one or two steps further by getting you information that's not even in the, the article that could be relevant to you. And so I think that, as an example, is you know, extremely powerful. Now, um, a really useful research tool that marketers and sellers might want to use at this point would be a tool like Jarvis, which yes. is an AI writer. And yes. if you program it with the same kind of criteria, it can then come back and pull back the content and then create uh, content, write content for you that speaks to your target market. So uh, it may well pull out some very interesting insights that you're missing. So that might be an interesting research tool, a nice hack. What do you reckon? Yep, exactly. I think there's uh, there's a couple of tools like that. And I think they all can make personalization and writing emails a lot faster and less manual. So that's another thing that people, I think, underestimate. I think maybe the second category thing that people don't realize how powerful or possible it is, is just sort of like automated web scraping. There are lots of places to get data on the internet. And um, there's lots of websites. And you can weaponize those. And you can use those. And just because it isn't in a extremely structured database like Crunchbase, for example, doesn't mean you can't just pull a random website like Yelp, maybe, or just a random database or just a random like directory and use it to get the data point that you need. And there is technology out there or and just even like scrapers out there that can help you automate the, the structuring of that data in useful ways for your, your business. It might be worth your while speaking to a company called Common Thread, a guy called Tim Gosnell because they go out to look for psychographic matches. Um, Mm. They go out to about 3 billion different data points per record. 
So that could be an interesting uh, matchup there. So if we look at other blind spots that people have around the journey itself, what one of the areas that customers constantly complain about is that as they get passed from one department to the other, there's all this friction, it feels jarring, they have to start again. And what I'm really interested in is how you can really focus your creative prospecting activity on creating a lifetime communication with your customer from long before they're ever a customer to 20 years later when they're bringing their grandkids in to become customers. I'm really interested in that continuity because I see so much waste. You you see the waste at the top of the funnel. I, I saw a stat yesterday, $92 spent getting people into your pipeline and only $1 spent for every 92 on conversion. Now, to my mind, that just strikes me as insane. I really like the point around uh, on on sort of how do you maintain that lifetime relationship and having that long-term perspective with the customer. I think maybe the way of thinking about that is following your customer over time. And, and you know, people sh- the people data on like, on, on how frequently customers and people in general move jobs these days is obviously faster than ever. And I think staying on top of that and understanding that um, your customer moved from this company to that company and identifying the movement of where your customer champions are going is really, really interesting. And then having like sort of an automated system to stay on top of that and do the reach outs and, and have that relationship on an ongoing basis can be really fruitful if you have that long-term perspective. Interesting. Okay. So what about the alignment between marketing and the top of the funnel SDR functions and then sales and CS and account growth and product development? How do we make sure that the internal uh, communication is smooth and consistent and we're all marching to the same tune? I think if you have a go-to-market motion that incentivizes that, it makes it a lot easier. And so I think if you uh, look at product like growth companies, they have a much easier time at that internal communication because the product is doing the sales in many ways. And so if the product is doing the sales, then you need the product marketing to be pretty close to that. And then if you need the and, and then the sales is just really looking at the PQLs and uh, the people who are already who are already just you know high users in the product or whatever it might be, and then converting them. And so that way, everyone's aligned and on the same page because the go-to-market motion is driving from that basis. Right. So effectively, I think you've just touched on something really interesting, which is that you uh, measure and you compensate for their actual listening and collaboration. That's what effectively you're rewarding for. Yeah, because otherwise, if you're in this like sales top-led bottom-down sales motion from, from sales, the problem is that you're going to have the, the classic issues between sales and customer success and marketing, where sales is going to try and sell everything. Customer success is going to think that you're, they're getting them bad customers. The sales team doesn't have incentive to think about the customer after the point of sale and is not incentivized to think about long-term retention. Then you have a whole host of problems that you're trying to deal with. Okay. So as I look at the way technology has exploded, I mean, in our world, it's at least a trillion dollar a year market. There are well over 10 and a half thousand MarTech vendors alone. There's two and a half thousand SEP vendors. There's at least 200,000, I would have thought, training, consultancies, growth 
advisory businesses, coaches. I mean, they're, they're more of them than flies. And they're all trying to solve this one problem because no one brings any of us in for any other reason than they want to grow their revenues. They want to grow their business. Ultimately, that's why people spend money on training. They want to see results improve. That's why they buy software. They want to see results improve. So I think one of the big challenges is that vendors have to stop thinking about their product as a standalone. It's a cog within the overall very complex machine. If we look at the average bank, they have 800 to 900 apps. You and I probably have somewhere between 25 and 40 just on our own. You look at outbound companies, outsourced outbound companies are spending 10 to 20,000 per rep on technology and data per year. Now, what's going to be really interesting is how on earth are SMEs going to keep up with that salary inflation, the technology arms race, and the data war? It's not impossible to be able to keep up with that. There's just the cost, let alone finding the people. How are they going to do it? Sorry, I was eating a couple of nuts. Um, <laughs> I think the way that a lot of these people will do it is maybe they'll just shift their entire go-to-market motion to, I, I mean, we're already seeing this, right? Like, I think there's already this huge level of interest in a product like growth motion. I think lots of companies want to do it because it's cheaper. You need a lot fewer sales reps and uh, it's faster in many ways and it's better margins. The problem, of course, is that not everyone's product is actually built for that. And there'll be many products that'll never really be able to build for that. But that, I think, is the solution that lots of companies are going to try for right now. So what makes for a good uh, PLG product-led growth uh, product? Retention, I think, is the most. Uh, retention and word of mouth and like a, a viral loop in some way. And those three all sort of go hand in hand together because, I mean, if you have word of mouth, you're getting the word of mouth through that viral loop. And then if you have the viral loop, it's working because there's lots of things in place for the product to encourage quick activation and frequent engagement of the user so that retention is really, really strong. Interesting. Okay. So if we think about retention specifically, as the VCs and private equity are now shifting from revenue at any cost to profit, you have to collect cash. This now cause requires businesses to focus very much on retention. There's no point letting someone come in through the front door and then pushing them out the back door because of inattention, bad initial experience, failure to deliver outcomes, you know, all those kind of things. So in terms of how you can use your creative communication in order to drive higher retention rates, what are the options open to people and how do they use the technology to ensure they're meeting their existing customers where they are instead of where the seller wants them? I'm not sure that there is like technology per se to make retention better. I think it's if you're having a problem with retention, then you're having a problem with your product. And I would go back to, to a very first principles approach. And I would think about, are you really solving the problem that your customer has? And there might be different issues there, right? Like maybe you don't have the right customers or maybe you don't have the right problem and or maybe you need to pivot the business or maybe your solution isn't solving the problem they're having in the right way. And I think that there are some exercises like 
the CEO of Superhuman wrote this exercise. Um, he sort of called it like a product market fit survey or analysis that he would do on a semi-frequent basis. I think you wrote about it in the first round review. And I think exercises like that can get at the heart of like what these problems are that your customers are having and like trying to understand how upset they would really be if your solution didn't exist and how close you are to product market fit. But I don't think that there's like, you know, something that you can just pay for that will just solve your retention problem. But I do think that there are uh, techniques that you could use like this, you know, product market fit survey that could better identify what the problems are. Well, I've spotted another fly in the ointment as well. Because of the high levels of turnover, the people that you trained on the product have often already left and they haven't passed it on. And a huge problem with companies that are growing fast is that they don't spend enough time on the pre-onboarding and the setup because they're in a hurry to make the sale. So they don't set it up correctly. And so when they do kick the product off, then there isn't quite the uptake and adoption that they were hoping for. And once people uh, leave, then that knowledge goes with them. And if they haven't kept tabs on that, then very quickly people stop using it and you don't get the renewal. So you have to watch for that. And I've seen that happen in hospitality. I've seen it happen in tech. So be careful of that one. It's, I mean, it's already happened at Koi. We've had a few customers already, and, and thankfully they all, all retained, but um, where there were layoffs or people just left, and the entire team was gone. And I had to educate and convince a whole new set of people to keep this product. And so there is a really powerful argument here. If you have an account that has expansion potential, then it's essential that you have more than three to five points of contact. And these are advocates. These are people who love what you do. You understand one another. There's intimacy. There's trust. Because if someone moves, you need to know as soon as they do. And you also need to make sure that you're building a charm offensive. Because on average in an enterprise, there are between 8 and 16 people who directly influence or make the decision. So you need to look for influencers, mobilizers, decision makers. And the problem is almost none of those people are contacted because the average salesperson speaks to between one and two uh, buyers within the buying committee. Now, that's pretty much the kiss of death. So again, I'm really interested in how you nurture medium to long-term pipeline and you use it to build a bridge to get access to other people so that you've got 10, 15 people by the time they move from passive to active looking? That's a good question. And I'm just trying to think about it right now. That is ultimately why you have a sales team, right? Or why you have this like uh, customer success team that's actively developing these relationships with these bigger accounts and always on, uh, always like very eagle-eyed on like who's moving, who's going where, and always making sure that if someone were to leave your co- that company, that you have a bunch of people who are trained, ready to go. Because you also want to always like, make the internal champion look good. And I think that some companies have always faced drop-offs where there's one internal champion and they're trying to get the rest of the team to onboard to the product. And it's just hard and it's challenging because the rest of the team isn't as enthusiastic about it. And maybe that internal champion isn't great at teaching. And so you have to identify what those drop-off points are so that you can then go back in and, and, and start identify those moments and then pounce when those moments happen so that you can say, okay, thank you for sharing this product with six of your team members, 
why don't we come in and do a training for all of them together? And so that's sort of how, like maybe a technique or a you know, metric that you could sort of optimize around. Like maybe when a user invites, you know, three plus other members to the product that you could then productize a, a reach out point to. So this again is really important, a really important point, because to do that, you have to understand the buyer's journey, what process they go through um, from making space to passive looking, to active looking, to deciding the first use, to ongoing use. You need to understand where they are in that journey, because if you send them the wrong message at the wrong time, the best you can hope for it will be ignored. The worst is that they will put you into spam. Then all of your future communication is blocked. So in terms of how you work with your clients to help them make sure their message is timely, relevant, and delivers value on every punch, what kind of resistance do you get to people changing their messaging and changing their channels? Well, we're less of an agency and more of a software product. And so we're not really like on the on the front lines, like sort of helping them, you know, hone their messaging. Yeah. So we're not really helping them hone their messaging or or change their messaging. Um, and I think frankly, if they're coming to us, they're pretty open-minded about all the different creative techniques they can do. It's more about just hand-holding them to find out what those techniques are for their business and then helping them execute on it. Okay. So Again, I'm really interested in your B2B sales approach here. So how much research are you doing on companies? What what sort of pre-qualification are you doing to ensure that when you turn up, you're timely, relevant, and valuable? To be honest, we're not really doing much outbound right now. The vast, vast majority, in fact, if not 100%, is all inbound and through word of mouth and like natural virality. And so that's a very privileged position, and I acknowledge that. Um, but we're doing very, very little outbound. I think we are just starting to do a couple of tests right now. And what these tests are are basically like, hey, here's a solution in Clay that if you have a wait list for your product, you could use Clay to automate the enrichment and prioritization of that wait list. And maybe let's go find some companies who have a wait list so we can tell them about this as an example. And you could find these companies that have a waitlist by doing a keyword search on their website for words like request access or something, waitlist. Or we could go to a recruiter and be like, hey, we're helping other people who look like you do this one thing, and it's working really well for them, and here's a video explaining exactly how I do it. And so using the product to sell itself, and then they're like, okay, wow, that's great. I'll just do that then. I think a lot of outbound is also just like these... like There's this technique that people try and do, which is just really short emails and just like getting attention. And I try to take a different approach that's, I think, more brand and consistent with Clay to be more human and just be more like, you know, this problem, we can solve this problem. Here's proof of this. And yeah, and maybe I'll just give you something for free to show you that I just want to create value for you. So tell me a little bit more about the recruitment idea, because you've just got my imagination exploding. Well, I mean, Clay can also be used for recruiting. And so I just use that as an example. But given how similar recruiting and prospecting are. And so, for example, in Clay, you could use the product, pull in data from GitHub and Twitter, and then you could use that for recruiting. So let's say you want to hire uh, an engineer who's familiar with like React. You go find a React repo in GitHub, you pull all the contributors to that project, and then when you reach out to them, you say, hey, I saw you contributed to this project, and then your response rates will skyrocket given how you know personalized and how targeted that approach is. Very interesting. Okay. 
And recruiters don't think like that, right? Like the vast majority right. of recruiters are just using LinkedIn recruiter and like searching for product managers and just reaching out to them. Okay. So I've got a few more people I need to introduce you to as well. Let's look at that maybe in terms of the investor community. Is there any reason why you wouldn't be able to use it to try and identify, for example, repeat investors? Investors do use the product to like do deals to help with deal sourcing. So really any business that's doing prospecting, recruiting, or finding anything, you could use Clay to help automate. Right. But I'm thinking more the general partner in a fund or general partners are obsessed with raising the next fund. And every job to be done stems from that. If they haven't raised their next fund, then everything focuses around that. So if we know that, it allows us to understand uh, what the job to be done is, what they're trying to accomplish, and who the likely executors of that job are, the people have to execute it, that community. So it allows us to become much, much more precise in terms of not only our messaging, but also the order in which we target people. Now, from a repeat investor perspective, if I can identify that you are someone who is likely to reinvest, and then I can find copycat profiles in the raw data of other investors, then those are the sorts of investors I would want to attract to my fund. Mm. Yep, yep, that makes sense. And I mean, similarly for companies, companies want to look at investors or identify who has invested in companies that might be, you know, similar enough, but not competitive enough, where they might be uh, more receptive to hearing your pitch. And so you could use Clay to sort of like find those companies and then find the investors for those businesses and then draw those parallels. Right. So again, if we use a technology like Clay, then I think another application that could be really very interesting is partner recruitment and ecosystem recruitment. So looking for people who, can we search for values? Is there data out there that would imply- What do you mean by values? The stuff that people, that drives people's decisions. Because at the end of the day, values are things that you don't compromise on. Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, do, do people do people have like a personal blog where they might have published what their own values are? Or on a careers page or an about us page, a company might have published what their company values are. And so maybe that could be a clue to uh, a proxy to finding what those are. Okay. Because, I mean, finding repeat investors and finding partners could save an enormous amount of effort because most of the activity is done in the filtering process and disqualifying out the non-prospects. The same in the top of the funnel. You know, if you look at the uh, the motions that most RevOps organizations go through, actually, it's about disqualifying out. But they do that poorly and they do it too late because they don't understand their customer deeply enough. So this really then brings me to the next critical question, which is how can you really understand your customer when you're looking through the, the, a traditional lens of industry job title turnover? I think there are a couple of ways. And I think maybe one way is looking at your existing customers and trying to draw what the parallels are and thinking about what are the common denominators amongst all of your existing customers. And you have to think more deeply, right? Like maybe it's how many developers they have. And then maybe it's how many, what is the ratio of developers to product managers that they have? 
and um, thinking about, and maybe it's like how many um, developers are they hiring for at any given time? And then once you understand what the common denominators are and parallels amongst your existing customers, you can use that as a scoring model to prioritize your prospects as well. Okay. Or maybe that so they all use a certain technology, whatever it might be. Okay. This is really interesting because I'm seeing a few technologies playing around in this space. What I'm really interested in is how those technologies can become utilities in other products because I think what's going to become really prevalent are data integration partnerships where technologies are looking at creating ecosystems. You're seeing it with Salesforce, with HubSpot. You know, they've created these amazing ecosystems and making it easy for people, well, hopefully easy for people to plug in. So in terms of the growth of ecosystems, uh, do, you, do you have any interest in that area? What do you mean in terms of the growth of ecosystems? Can you give me a little more color there? Well, I think that traditional channels will be put under quite a lot of pressure as well, because as people get laid off, as they get more and more frustrated with working in corporates, they're likely to go off on their own. But in order to survive and thrive through the recession, they need to cooperate with others because they don't have the bandwidth, they don't have the reach, and frankly, they don't have the weight on their own. But with four or five others, they can put together a really cracking solution. They're all very good at what they do. Um, And then those communities start to grow and build. And I think that's uh, how a lot of business will be done in the future, working through those ecosystems. Yeah, I think like many companies are starting to see that their like communities are starting to be maybe the best ecosystem for something like this. Now, I know that's very easy to say, much, 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 much harder to execute on, very hard to actually build a community that's engaging and that creates value for the participants and uh, and can grow and is is meaningful. And that then can serve as a growth channel. But if you can do that, I think that's a really, really powerful ecosystem to tap for uh, for driving your growth. Well, what's really interesting, I'm starting to see, and we're experimenting with this ourselves, is how do you either grow or tap into communities of your target audience and then create massive, incontrovertible value consistently? And how do you promote everybody else? The key is to learning, uh, learn to keep your ego at the door. If you can be comfortable with someone else's success, and if you can be comfortable promoting even a competitor because it's the right thing for the customer. Yep. You build enormous credibility with the customer and they trust you justifiably because you've done the right thing consistently. Now, in a world where they're worried and caveat emptor is ripped large in most people's minds, you know, they're constantly beware, um, what's it, uh, nervous of uh, sales outreach and marketing. How do we build trust in an era where trust has been eroded so badly. It comes down to being authentic to who you are, who your brand is, and just being genuine and just looking out for the customer's best interests. There are a host of little tools that are like social listening tools. There's one I've been using recently called uh, Swifton, I think it is, or Sifton. And that lets you tap into what are lots of different communities, Slack or Reddit or whatever might be saying about your product or your competitors that you can then use to say, okay, great. Someone mentioned this thing about Zoom info or someone mentioned this thing about corporate retreats. Let me go respond to them and be like, hey, you should check out my solution or you should check out some of these other solutions as well. 
And that could be a really interesting way to start hearing how your customers or your prospective customers are thinking about your product or thinking about how to solve the problem that your uh, product solves. This has been really interesting, Varun. Thank you. Um, Look, we're coming to the top of the hour. Um, Tell me this. You've got a golden ticket and you can go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot Varun, age 23. What would you say to him that you know he'd have probably have ignored but would have been valuable? I think this is going to sound very generic, but I think I've made a lot of decisions in my life, sort of thinking to my mind and less about less thinking about my gut or what my heart might say when it comes to career decisions. And I think that uh, passion and enthusiasm is really underrated when it comes to choosing you know, business you want to work at or any of these decisions. And I think I would have asked you know my younger self to listen to that far more than I did before because... I was listening to like, oh, who are the investors? Or how do I think about this from a business perspective or whatever it might be? And I think I found that my guts and my like emotion and my enthusiasm have been stronger indicators of success than anything else before. It's really important to learn to trust your gut, but you need to learn to calibrate it. And part of the problem is that people don't have the patience to try and work out uh, scientifically whether or not what your gut is telling you is a warning or a recommendation. Once you started to understand the the subtle difference in the feeling that your gut gives you, then you can start to really trust it. And that raises your level of self-awareness. And it's important because it allows you to maximize your risk. So really good advice. Okay. What would you recommend people read, watch, or listen to? Read, watch, or listen to? Wow, big topic. I just watched uh, the the... The, the House of Dragon uh, Game of Thrones premiere. <laughs> I watched uh, last it last night. night. So excited. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't think that's a very unique recommendation of something. Maybe something that I really love to recommend. I, I'm just such a student of history and love reading uh, books by history. I'm visiting the UK right now and I just listened, I just read um, Say Nothing, which is the book about the Troubles and uh, the book about Northern Ireland and Belfast and the, and the whole conflict there. And I thought that was a really, really good book and a really good education to a war basically and, and a civil conflict that I had very little awareness of. And I just felt like, and I, we visited Dublin last weekend. And so I really like to read books or read content about a place that I'm visiting and the heritage and the history of that place before doing it. And I, um, and I, and I really enjoy doing that. Have you listened to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History? I have listened to a few episodes of Hardcore and History. And what about History on Fire? I haven't listened to History on Fire. Uh, history uh, on so- Fire is fabulous. The guy's an Italian professor of history. He's into martial arts. And his, the, the way he approaches a topic is always really very, very interesting. And it doesn't feel like you're being lectured in any way. He's forcing you to look at you know, society through the eyes of the people who are living it. And it's really brilliant. You'll love it. And Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, in some of these episodes, are six hours long. Yep. So they do require some commitment, but they are absolutely worth it and the one on the suffragettes and the one on the slave trade and the one on the assyrians is just breathtaking Uh, they, they are amazing and when you realize that the assyrians were nastier than the romans we're getting off quite lightly at the moment yep yep excellent how can people get hold of you very Pretty easily. I'm on Twitter uh, and I'm on LinkedIn. I can put in my Twitter handle. I think it's just VX on him. And then I'm on LinkedIn and you can just find me, uh, you know, Varun Clay. 
there aren't too many of us, so it's pretty easy to find. And so, um, yeah, I, I respond to, to the vast majority of outreach, so if not everything. So please feel free to DM me on Twitter or on LinkedIn, and I'm happy to get in touch. Thank you very much. Excellent. Awesome. Thank you, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this and found it useful, then please like, comment, share, and tag someone who might find the content useful. In the meantime, if you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. And I'm launching a program on predictive hiring called Hiring Winners. And it's how you hire winners first time, every time. Because the hidden cost of hiring a bad hire in enterprise sales can be anywhere between 35 and 125 times salary. You don't want to make that kind of mistake. So in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.